We spent four years preaching through Hebrews, and we're going to cover the whole book tonight. So if it's not obvious, our approach will be a little different as we'll move much more quickly in these overview studies. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we are thankful for this opportunity as we consider the book of Hebrews, we consider um, the state of of uh, the church there, and as we consider the state in the minds of the believers, I pray one tonight, Lord, that you would help us to to relate uh, to their situation, and I pray too that you would help us to see our situation um, in light of theirs, and three, I hope that we would heed the warnings that you gave them, and four, I hope that we would revere Christ properly. Uh, that's our prayer tonight, Lord. We love you, we humble ourselves before you, and we thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in these overview studies, the goal has been to understand what these books are about and be able to sort of go to them quickly um, with more of a consideration of like if someone's, so I'm going to do it a little different tonight than we've done before. So if if someone was, was wanting to talk about leadership, what might be a book that you would go to? was that? First Timothy, that's right. That was the easiest one, I thought. And so, if, uh, if someone wanted to talk about grace, what might be a good book to go to? See, I'm coming at it the other way. Y'all see what's happening here? Yeah. They were talking about grace, or maybe, you know, that goes so hand in hand with, let's say, unity. Ephesians, there you go. And if someone was, you know, wanting to talk just about just faith in general, what's just a good faith book? Room full of Christians, what's a good (laughs) faith book? Yes, the Bible, which happens to include Galatians. Very good. Very, very well done. Um, What about humility? Philippians. There we go. What about hope? Second Thessalonians. What about forgiveness? Philemon. Boom. We'll stop there. We're we're ahead. Which brings us to the book of Hebrews, which the Dever kind of went rogue on this one. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it's because it's a longer book than all these others have been, but it's... his subtitle is Sticking with the Best. Sticking with the Best. So we have faith, grace, humility, new life, second coming, hope, leadership, success, beginnings, forgiveness, and sticking with the best. So it's a little uh, imbalanced uh, according to others, but, but you'll, you'll get the, the feel of it as we go along. So we live in a world of options, like lots and lots and lots of options. To really make sure that we understand our setting and to understand sort of some of the dynamics of the setting here in, in the Hebrew setting, um, and how that might affect our decisions regarding faith, I want to take a minute to get in touch with reality by asking this question. What are some of the options that you have throughout any given day? Like, just think back to today. What were some options that you had? What you're going to eat? And what options do you have at Starbucks? Whether to go or not to go, go, right? If you want good coffee, you don't go. But, yeah, there's lots of options at Starbucks. You start with, you know, 
medium, dark, light, tall, grande, venti, iced, not iced, foam, no foam, whip, no whip, sugar, no sugar. Yeah, lots of options just in that one setting. What are some other options that y'all face today? What? Who you're going to spend time with? Every day of my life. Every day of my life. I struggle with that. Do I wash my beard or not? Yes. Yeah. And by your hat, I'm going to assume you went with. <laughs> what else? What are other options? What to wear. Okay. Got a whole closet full of options there. What else? Yes, or just give them some cereal. We were always told cereal was packed with vitamins and protein, and we'd eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, me and my three brothers. What else? What are some other options? Like if you go get gas, 87, 89, or 93. I went to Chipotle today. I had to first make a decision on if I was going to get a bowl or a salad, or a burrito, or there's some other options, but no one ever chooses them. And then it was chicken, or steak, or barbacoa, or whatever. And then it's, you know, all the options as you go along. I was like, I was thinking about the study. I was like, I have like 437 options, as best I can tell, just here at Chipotle. And then I was like, wow, that's a lot of options. And I go to get a drink. I'm like, I have eight more options right here. And then it's like, I even had options for which fork bin. I wanted to pull my fork out of because they only have forks, but they have like five options for which which one you want. It makes you feel good. Three options for the for the napkins. The point is there are options. We are we are loaded out on options. Author Rodney Clapp says this. So as we have lots of options because we are in a very consumer driven society. You don't have to have a consumer-driven society to have a lot of options, but when you do have a consumer-driven society, you have many options. And I want to read this, and I'm probably going to read it twice because it's kind of long and it's, it's kind of heady, but it's a really great quote to start off and kind of set the pace for what's going on with Hebrews here. He says, trained as consummate consumers, we learn to adopt even religious faiths tentatively with an eye to new options that may appear around the bend. No wonder we find it less and less credible to think anything might be worth dying for. But if nothing is worth dying for, is anything worth living for? Devoid of substantive purpose, our lives too easily degenerate into bland avoidance of pain and the ending search for new amusements. So, shopping becomes the highest or essential form of life. Shopping becomes a high essential form. I'm going to read that whole thing again. Trained as consummate consumers, we learn to adopt even religious faiths tentatively. So he's saying, we're so consumer-driven that people shop for their church. My brother and sister-in-law are moving into a new community in Prosper, and they have had to shop for their churches. And I posted a deal on Facebook recently on church hunters. Have you seen that? It's a parody of, of house hunters. But it's like, it, you know, you go to the church and... What are some options you might look for as your church shopping? Music. Like it, don't like it. Contemporary, not contemporary. Got early service, got traditional service. Then we got the choir and the traditional service, or we have the mixed blended. 
in one of the services where that means you're going to sing some hymns, but it's going to be done by a band, and then the band's going to do one song that no one knows. <laughs> Every service across the country. What are some other options when you're church hunting? What do they do with the kids? Yes. Yes. What are they going to do with the kids? Are they going to make us take them to worship? Or are they going to have age-graded classes? Do they have a big gathering time? Do they not have a big gathering time? Coffee is obviously a big deal. Is it good coffee? Is it bad coffee? How, what is the proximity of the coffee station to the worship center? And how far do you have to walk to fill up midway through the sermon? All that kind of stuff. Do I like the preaching? Is it expository preaching? Is it topical preaching? Does he wear a tie? Does he not wear a tie? Does he tuck his shirt in? Does he not tuck his shirt in? Does he have like holes in his jeans or no? And there, there are just so... How's the parking? What's the parking lot? What's the parking like? What's the proximity to restaurants? I mean, it is ridiculous. No wonder we find it less and less credible to think anything might be worth dying for, because if nothing is worth dying for, is anything really worth living for? Devoid of substantive purpose, we don't have a purpose that is rooted firmly in Christ, our lives too easily degenerate into bland avoidance of pain and the ending search for new amusements. So shopping becomes the highest or essential form of life. Simply put, too many of us worship at the altar of the God of options. Think about the apps on your phone. What's your most popular app that you use? Facebook. What are the options you have on Facebook? Who to be friends with, who not to be friends with, who to follow, who to unfollow. Do I like this? I mean, it, it, it starts off like, yeah, how do you feel? Here's all your options. And even when you set up your profile, you have like 58 gender options that you can choose from as well. I'm serious. Go look at it. It's incredible. I didn't know there were 58. I originally thought there were two, but there's 58. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, we have all these options. and we. I mean, um, I have a Pinterest board. Don't y'all know that? I don't know if y'all knew that. I'm a very modern man. And uh, most of it is like hunting and fishing, but, but you can... It, it's, it's like, look at all these options of things I could buy or all these options of places I could go or all these options of things I could drive or all these options of things I could do to the car I already drive and, and all this stuff. I mean, there's options, 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 options. Um, there's a wonderful book, as, as we consider too many of us worship at the altar of the God of options. I don't know if you've read this book. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. It is a public discourse in the age of show business. The thing I love about this book is it talks about how the telegraph turned the world into a neighborhood. Now go with me, like think about that. How the telegraph turned the world into a neighborhood. Um, throughout this book are, is quote after quote of insightful things about how we are amusing ourselves to death and how we call things news that aren't really news just because we have the options to hear them. So like he, he says, well, the queen has a cold. Who cares? That's not going to affect your day at all. It's not going to affect the decisions you should make. And he essentially says, we're making ourselves stupid by amusing ourselves. And this book, the thing I love about it the most is it is so emphatic and so clear, and it was written before the internet. So it talks about the amusing that happens in, in our society. Before It says, more relevant than ever, the prophetic landmark work exploring the corrosive effects of electronic media on a democratic society. Is what it's about. It's not a Christian book, in case you hadn't picked up on that yet. But, uh, but it's very good. Good read if y'all are wanting to dig into that a little bit more. So we have all of these options. Dever explains that the book of Hebrews is sort of a consumer report. 
So if we consider this setting that, that we should be familiar with, the book of Hebrews is a sort of consumer report. The author of this book, who we can, we're not sure who it is, there's lots of different opinions and um, a lot of them are really valid and some of them are stupid. But he says that the author lays out the person of Christ, what he's done, and then sets him against the Old Testament religious system that was native to most of his audience and to which some were feeling tempted to return. So the setting here is there's all these new Christians and some things in the way of um, oppression and pushback are ratcheting up. And as they're following Christ and they're hearing the story of Christ and they're trying to live in their new life and what it means to be in Christ, many of them are being tempted to return to what they know, to return to what's familiar, which is the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so if you think in terms of a consumer report, you know, if you read something about like a new truck that comes out, they compare it to all the other trucks. They compare it to the other similar options. And so that's kind of what the writer of Hebrews does. He, we, we've studied it for years, but you, you all know he, he compares what the other options are and encourages them to not go with the poor option, but to you know, stick with the best, as, as is the title. So they're feeling tempted to return. Look at 1032. We're going to read 1032 through 34. And just, just to kind of, we know that's the general setting, but as I read these, I'm going to ask the question, what else do we know about these particular people to whom this letter is written? And in 1032, it says this. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And over in 610, it says this, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Just from those verses, what do we know about this group of people? They've endured hardship. What else do we know about them? They've served others, and they've served them well. So they've served well, they've endured hardship. What else? What? And they still do. So this is a group that has a history of doing things well, and they're still doing them well. They had done good things in the past, and they're continued by making sacrifices at great cost to themselves currently. So... This is a good group of believers. They are moving in a solid manner. They have a, a history, sort of a track record of serving others and being willing to suffer for their faith, having their goods plundered, but they, they allow it joyfully. I mean, that says something about their heart, right? And so their heart is in a good spate, a good, a good place, a good spot, whatever, and then they are, um, they're currently still doing those things. But difficulty is brewing. So look at 512. 5.12 says this, for though, so this is the same people, the same people that were just noted as making sacrifices and joyfully, allowing their goods to be plundered joyfully. It says also of that same group, for though by this time in 5.12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. The situation here is that while they were living as Christians in some ways, some parts of their life looked properly, appropriately Christian, the onset of persecution was causing them to waver and wonder if the faith was worth all the trouble that it was bringing. Have it, do y'all, I just kind of want to take a second to ask, have any of y'all experienced that? Did any of y'all experience that you were not living in faith and then when you came to faith, it brought trouble that you didn't expect? Yep. And if, if, if y'all want to share what that looks like, you can. I, just, I thought it'd be a good moment to kind of See if any of y'all had that experience where, because some of us grew up in a Christian home and haven't really experienced much persecution or pushback, but, but some had, you know, life change at a certain point and came to faith and it brought difficulties that, was unexpected, that were unexpected. Yeah, yeah, faithfulness can bring tension in your home, for sure. Anything else? Any other experiences? All right, you don't have to share. I just thought, ah, I'm going to put that out there and see. So the situation here is they're wondering, you know, some of the trouble that faith brings, is it worth it? You know, in our, in our speaking broadly, in our context, what is some of the trouble that faith might bring to your life? Ridicule. Greater temptation. Yeah. Forced to do something you don't want to do or don't agree with. Loss of friendships, potentially. What else? Yeah. Yeah. There are, our, our fight's not against flesh and blood, but against powers, darkness, principalities. So sometimes the enemy says... I don't want that to happen. And you, that's why it says resist the enemy and he will flee from you because there's something to resist. Burdens to share. Yeah, Galatians. Don't become weary in doing good, but bear one another's burdens as you have opportunity to do good every time. That means we bear each other's burdens. So you go from having just your own burdens to everyone else's burdens. But we know that the benefit of that is that now, your own burdens are shared by everyone else as well. So there's, when you dig deep, you, you can see that. That's kind of the, the method that they're going through here, is, is, is this worth it? And some of them are, it appears in this book, from the warning issued, um, that these Christians were, were sorely tempted to desert their faith. Like they were, they weren't just like, well, maybe we should go back. It was like, I, I'm, I'm going, like, I'm, like the bags are packed, they're by the door, we're going to go back to this Old Testament system. We're going to go back to the sacrificial system. We're going to go back to what we know, to what's familiar, and go back to something that doesn't bring the trouble that faith brings. And for them, it would have brought, you know, as you've, as you've heard, persecution, um, public ridicule, 
plundering of their goods. Those, that's a sample in here of what we have on what their faith, um, some of the trials that their faith brought. So consider for a moment how you would appeal to someone considering living, leaving the faith. So we're reading about what he's going to appeal, but, but before we do that, like how would you appeal to someone who's considering leaving the faith? W- what might be a normal response if someone you know who is a believer comes up to you and says, you know what, I don't, I don't buy it anymore. I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm out. What would your response be? What would be a natural response? Whether it's right or wrong, what would be a natural response? Yeah, how could you leave faith? What else might be a natural response? I mean, like personalize it. Let's say your brother or sister who's a believer, or your parent who's a believer, or a good friend who's a believer comes up to you. I'm, I think I'm done. I think I'm going to go back to my old way of life. What caused it? Yeah, yeah, an obvious question. What, what in the world's going on? I think a natural response, you can't. No. Like imperatives and exclamation points. Like, no, no, no. You can't. You must do this. You can't do this. That's not going to work. You're going to make a train wreck. You're talking about apostasy. Hell is real. What are you thinking? And I think the imperatives and the exclamation points, I mean, for me anyway, would be what would be natural. Just sort of like, what are you, here's what you have to do. You can't do that. And it's interesting here because Deborah has a note. He says, the writer of this letter knows that if his readers are going to endure, they will have to endure because they believe these truths about Jesus. That's it. They're going to endure not through a bunch of imperatives, not through a bunch of exclamation points, but through the truth about Jesus. The only way that they will endure is by believing these truths about Jesus, not because they've risen to the occasion through personal fortitude. I mean, if someone... You know, just keep on, keep, you know, come on, just keep on going. You know, you don't have to bail. Personal fortitude won't get it done. And here, the temptation to return to their old way of life, to the Old Testament sacrificial system is so great that the writer of the letter knows personal fortitude's not going to do it. Digging down deep, reaching down deep inside, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is never going to work. They have to have a clear picture of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how different it is from what they're considering going back to. He's going to hold them up in all of their truth and say, really, you're going to have to see Jesus for who he is. That's the only way you're going to endure. So we have like sometimes these schemes in evangelism, you know, how we're going to do this or do that or win someone over or win the argument. Apologetics is this whole big realm of how to, how to speak those things. But really the ultimate goal of all those things is so that people can see Jesus for who he is and decide, am I going to, am I, am I going to follow Jesus or not? Is, is, that, is that worthy of my faith or not? Is his grace irresistible or not? So that brings us to a big part of this book, which is the question of who is Jesus. So look at 1, 1 through 5. This is going to feel very basic to everybody in this room, probably. This is going to feel very basic. But we have to remember that when someone is in the situation that they're in, this is what is essential Like, what is basic and essential doesn't ever change. When you're moving away from something, you don't try to find something more exciting. You try to find what is what you had moved away from. And so he goes back to who is Jesus. And here we we see long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers as um, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has appointed to us. He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed 
the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So as he's writing this letter, that's what he starts off with. So when it comes to who is Jesus, what's the first obvious answer? Jesus is what? The son of God. That, that is essential. It's, it's his greeting. It's, it's the opening lines. It's as we get into all these chapters and all these, all these details, first and foremost, Jesus is the Son of God, and that's who we're talking about. That's what this Christian faith is all about. It's all about Jesus Christ. And first and foremost, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a wise teacher. He's not just a you know, good communicator, whatever. Um, we're talking about the Son of God. And as basic and elementary as that might seem, you might have some things in your life where as you're considering your faith in Christ and areas where your faith is wavering, areas where you're giving into temptation, it may be really fitting to just say, hold on, Jesus is the Son of God, the exact imprint of his nature. How does that affect the temptation I'm facing right now? How does that affect this, in, this inclination that I have in my heart to do what's wrong? In the moment of temptation, in the moment of doubt, in the moment of fear, whatever it might be, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. That is important in those moments. It's not just a Sunday school fact that's sort of like, well, yeah, everyone knows that Jesus is the Son of God. In the moments where we're facing such temptations or, or where we're wavering in our faith, that is absolutely essential and central to what you should be thinking about. He's the Son of God, the exact imprint of his nature, begotten of God. God is his Father. He is God's Son. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. Now look at 5, 9 through 10. Now this is less of a title and more of a reality that we have to understand about Jesus. It says in 5, 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you can rest assured we are not getting into Melchizedek tonight because this is an overview study. And then in 620 it says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then in 723 it says... Um, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what do we learn about Jesus? Jesus is what? Eternal forever. Jesus is eternal. No beginning, no end here. Jesus is eternal. So how does that affect someone who's struggling with a temptation or who's wavering in their faith? How does that affect someone? What do y'all think? Jesus isn't wavering. 
What else? Personally, one of my biggest struggles, personally, honestly, is anxiety. I struggle with anxiety. And I used to think that it was like a badge that said, this really means I care. That, that's how I thought of anxiety. And, you know, stress, and I'm really in. And, you know, I was ordained here as an elder at 29 years old. And so I kind of had this bent where I, I wanted people to know I take it seriously. I'm, I'm serious about it. And it was like one of the ways that I could show that I was serious about it was by the fact that I'm always always anxious about ministry. I was anxious about the church. I want things to be right. I don't want to do it wrong. I want to do it right. I want to, I want to be faithful. I want to be holy. I want to, I want to be obedient, and, and I want to help you to do the same thing. And, and honestly, it caused a lot of anxiety. I got put on blood pressure medication in my early 30s because of it. And part of, it's, you know, part of it was the genetics that my dad gave me, and uh, part of it is, is stress, is not dealing properly with anxiety. And it wasn't until I got to Philippians 4, and it said, do not be anxious about anything. And I was like, well, how can you even care? <laughs> like, how, how can you even, like, prove to people that, that you have any, you know, gumption or fortitude or tenacity if you're not anxious? And then it says, it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, humble yourselves before God. Let your requests be made known with thankfulness. And when you put all that together, it's like, Anxiety is a form of pride, and pride is sin. Anxiety is not this badge of, look, I really care about whatever it is. It's sin because you're not trusting the fact that Jesus is eternal, upholding the universe by the power of his word. If you believe that, the things that make you anxious don't make you anxious in the same ways, and they help you, you, you cling to these realities of Christ on who Jesus is and then you're able to go before him. And it, it, the, the crazy thing about that verse, and, and I've mentioned it before, and it's just it's close to home, is that it says he'll give you peace that exceeds understanding. Well, for anxious people, understanding equals peace. And so for anxious people, it's if I can understand all of this ridiculousness of life, I will have peace. And he says, no, I'll give you a peace that exceeds understanding. It's like, no, God, <laughs> peace is understanding. Peace is understanding. Understanding is peace. Don't I look peaceful? Give me understanding. But God says, no, don't be anxious. I'll give you peace that exceeds understanding, which means that there is a peace that exists in Jesus because he is eternal and he's the son of God that exceeds understanding all the details, exceeds understanding exactly what's going on. It's bigger than that. It's a peace that's better. But we have to hold on to who Jesus is. Who Jesus is matters in those moments of temptation those moments of fear, and those moments of um, potentially returning to an old way of life that has nothing to do with Jesus. The third thing is this. In 5.1, it says this. 
For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. I just want to stop there. That's one of my favorite verses as just a Christian. Yes, as a pastor, but mainly as a Christian. Every Christian has the, is a priest. The priesthood of the believer is something that's real because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But here it says, if you're the kind of person that sometimes struggles with patience with people, especially stupid people, this is a really helpful verse because it says, because he can deal gently with who? Ignorant. It doesn't say, act like they're not ignorant. It says you should be able to deal gently with those who are, who are ignorant or, or stupid or uninformed or dumb and wayward. So for those who are being um, unfaithful, sideways and dumb, you should be gentle. You don't have to rip their face off and call them ignorant, wayward morons. You're gentle. Why? Because he himself is beset with weakness day after day. When the worshiper brought their sacrifice to the priest and said, here's my sin, and they confessed their sin, and then the priest took that and cut it up and slung blood everywhere and put it on the fire, if that was your job all the time, and if uh, Jim Bob showed up day after day after day saying, I, I, I lied, I lied, I lied, I lied, my goat, I lied. There's my other goat, I lied. After day 47, there'd be a temptation to say, Jim Bob, stop lying, you ignorant, wayward moron. There would be a temptation to do that. There's a temptation to do that with our kids when they do the same thing five times in the hour. To be like, hey, come on, pull the head out of the weeds and do something that's not that. Anything other than that. Don't do that again. But we lose gentleness there because we forget that we ourselves are beset with weakness. That priest could do the priest's job over and over again because he had to do it for himself. He had to do it for himself. He, was, he wasn't just weak in some areas. The reality for the priest was he was beset with weakness. That's why pastors should be gentle because we're beset with weakness and we're in the priestly-ish role beset with weakness. That's a reality that when you see it for yourself, it affects the way it goes with other people. Then it says, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So as Jim Bob comes up and says, I lied, the priest would be like, yep, me too. Here's, my, here's mine. Uh, I had a lustful thought. Yep, I did too. Yeah, I gave way to temptation. Yep, I did too. That would be, the priest could relate because he was a sinner beset with weakness. So he goes on to say um, to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Why did the old priests pass away? Chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. Um, in 2.18 it says um, 2.18 it says uh, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is of Jesus. And then in 4.15, it says this. Um, 
For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what is Jesus? How, how does he differ from the other priests? He's perfect. Yeah. So Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is eternal. And Jesus is perfect. When you consider that, when you consider that you don't have to pay for your own sins, we don't have to bring sacrifices to worship anymore. In fact, what we bring in worship, when we gather for corporate worship, is a sacrifice of praise. There was a point in the history of the church where God said, praise is what you bring. You bring your song, and we will see you sing unto my glory. And that's a fitting sacrifice because we shouldn't bring goats anymore because we don't need goats anymore because Christ is a perfect sacrifice. Christ was a perfect priest. Christ could perfectly understand our weakness but the difference is he was perfect in how he dealt with temptation as opposed to how we deal with temptation sometimes. So he's the son of God, he's eternal, he's perfect. So that's who Jesus is, but what has Jesus done? Well, the first thing is, look at what well, I just said in 5.3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. That's the old priest. And then look at 10.4. For For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So not only does the priest offer sacrifices over and over, but the Old Testament priest offers the sacrifice of blood from bulls and goats to take away sin, but it's, he's offering a sacrifice where that's impossible to take away the sin. So we have um, uh, sacrifices that are being made that, that aren't even um, going uh, to work to make someone holy. And then in 726, it says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. This is of Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Jesus isn't making sacrifices daily for you. He's interceding for you, but he's not making sacrifices daily for you. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So what has Jesus done? The first thing is he's, he's, he's offered a permanent sacrifice. He doesn't have to keep doing it. Jesus offers a permanent sacrifice. In the midst of your temptation and fear and faith wavering, the reality of the permanent sacrifice, there's no more sacrifice that has to be made. You have strength to overcome that temptation, to overcome going back to what you know. He offered a permanent sacrifice, and the second thing is that he offered an effective sacrifice. It was permanent because it was effective. Look at um, 8, 8 through 9. It says, for he finds fault with them when he says this, and he's, there's a quote from Jeremiah. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Eden took him by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Why didn't they continue in the covenant? Why did, why did the Israelites not keep the covenant? There were sacrifices being made. There was like a priesthood. They, they had a, you know, they had a the form of that as they were going through everything. They only grew into it as they got older. Why didn't they keep the covenant? They couldn't. Why? Yeah, they have a sin nature. And what, well, didn't those sacrifices make them holy? 
No, they didn't. It wasn't effective sacrifices. The sacrifices only made them outwardly clean and ceremonially clean. There, there were not heart issues being dealt with when the goat was killed. So then what were, or there were heart issues being dealt with, but there were not heart issues being finally dealt with when the goat was killed. So then what was the point of the Old Testament sacrificial system if it couldn't really make anyone holy from the get-go? That's kind of like, like, was that just a joke? Like, is God being cruel? Why would he have that? Why would we have an entire system for an entire people through generation after generation when it was never really effective? And we find the answer in 9, 1 through 3. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And then it says over in 10, 1 through 4, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year, every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins. The Levitical system, the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll in the book. It wasn't until I studied through and taught through the Old Testament that I began to really understand words like sacrifice and holiness and um, priesthood and cleanness. It wasn't until I studied Leviticus that I realized the eternal value of perfect blood. If you study Leviticus, it's just a blood book. There's blood everywhere. And they do this and they sprinkle blood here and then they put some blood here and they put some blood here and then here and then, and then here and then they throw the blood over there. And it's just like, good grief, that's a bloody mess. There's blood everywhere. And then you realize, oh, none, none of it is sufficient. There's literally blood everywhere, and none of it can clean sufficiently. And so the value of perfect blood is understood when you read that and study it. And then in 10, 12, it says this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Dever has a note, he says, as our lives actually change, like in your life, when you find change, when you think, I'm tempted to this, but I didn't do that, or I was stronger in that moment, or I didn't give into that, or I didn't return to my old way of life, when your lives actually change, we show the reality of what Jesus did on the cross. When we change, we show the reality of what Jesus did on the cross because it is being made effective and real and tangible in our lives now. So we see who Jesus is, and then we see what he's done. He offered a permanent sacrifice and an effective sacrifice. And then a main point of this letter, which we'll close with, is seven dangers to avoid. So the first danger is in 2-1. And they're, they're obvious, but they're worth writing down because though they're obvious, they are still dangers that if we take our mind off of them, we may fall into them. 
So the first danger is this. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So what's the first danger? What? Yeah, forgetting what you've heard and ignoring what God has done in Christ. It's easy to hear it and then to ignore what God has done in Christ. That's the whole reason that they were tempted to return to the Old Testament system. They were really ignoring the marvel that God had done in Christ in providing a perfect sacrifice, a lasting sacrifice, an effective sacrifice. They had lost sight of the fact that he was the son of God, that he was eternal, that he was the perfect exact imprint of the nature of his father. And so ignoring what God has done is a real danger. I mean, let's go back to sort of the setting that we said at the very beginning of the study. Options everywhere. Options everywhere. And we think of church sometimes in those options. And we've got options here. And we don't want to get too bogged down on something. And we don't have deep roots. And then we just, we, we, we become shallow. And when you have all that, it's very easy to ignore what God has done in Christ. If you fill this side of the room with lots of excitement, if there's like a carnival going on there, I could very easily forget whatever was important over here just because there's options to, oh, look at that, oh, look at that, look at that, look at all the bright lights and the flashing and the beeps and the whistles and all that. That's our life. And it's not hard to consider that these people could figure out a way to ignore what God has done in Christ, especially when you add on top of the options the affliction that comes through faith. The second thing is this, not believing God. Danger one is ignoring what God has done in Christ, and two is just not believing him. In 3.12, it says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. This is falling away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there's a danger of not believing in God, and that danger is heightened when you are out of community because it is clear here that one of the ways you cling is with each other, is in community. The third thing is ceasing to grow. 5.12 says... For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And it goes on to say, um, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So there's this picture of, man, we're kind of getting back to the basics here because it's what you need, but it shouldn't be what you need. You should have grown. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's not saying that the, the elementary principles are unimportant. He's saying, I'm having to return to the elementary principles of Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is eternal. Jesus gave an effective sacrifice. Jesus gave a lasting sacrifice that's permanent. He's kind of having to go back to those basics because that's what they need. That's milk. But that shouldn't be what they need. They should have grown. So there's this expectation, and therefore a warning, of not growing. Dever says this. He says, severe warnings are given in Scripture to anyone who has heard and claims to believe who God is and then stops and doesn't press on. 
That's why we have such a great fear in our church of all the people in our community who say they're square with God, but they don't have a church home. They don't have a community that it's, that's going to help them to remember, don't forget what God has done in Christ. So here, severe warnings are given in Scripture to anyone who has heard claims to believe, heard, heard and claims to believe, but then has stopped and has not pressed on. He goes on to say, the idea that something can be alive, even though it has stopped growing, is a curious idea, and I'm not sure the New Testament is familiar with it. If it's alive, it's growing. I mean, we don't, you know, don't think simply as like, well, I'm not any taller than I was last year. We're, talk, we're not talking about that. You have a growth, not height. Don't minimize it. But the, uh, the, the idea that something could be alive and not growing in any way is one that the New Testament's not familiar with. The fourth danger is not persevering in holiness. In 10.22, it says this. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works and not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all and all the more as your um, as you see the day drawing near. Persevering in holiness is important. Dever says one of the most significant things that he realized that he gained from studying this book again is the renewed realization of how scary sin is. He said the book treats it with extreme seriousness, exactly because the sacrifice of Christ offered is considered effective. So when you consider sin in your life and you consider temptation and you consider going back to what's familiar, what's, what's easier. When you have that sin that you're struggling with or that temptation that you're struggling with, when you consider that Christ's sacrifice was effective, it brings a seriousness to that situation. You're not flipping about your sin when you're thinking, whoa, Christ's sacrifice was effective to save me from the sin and to make me genuinely holy so that I don't want to do the things I shouldn't do, but so that I will desire that which is good and pleasing and acceptable to my Lord. And so here, he says, Jesus' sacrifice was a sacrifice to end all sacrifices and the one that makes us truly holy. So if you say that this sacrifice has been offered for you, but you do not persevere in holiness, the author of Hebrews simply warns you of, fearful, of a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire. That's, that's what's said in, I think it's 35, 1035. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that you will have done the will of God so you may receive the promise. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So in those times where someone says, yes, I have the sacrifice of Christ, that is for me, but they're not persevering in holiness and they're not taking holiness seriously, there's a... Um, a warning of judgment and fearful expectation of it. Deliberate and repetitious sin in the Christian's life is very scary. So this picture that we're seeing here in Hebrews, sort of the overview, you know, 30,000 feet, is be sober about sin and serious about holiness. Be sober about sin and serious about holiness because Christ's sacrifice was effective. He was not like one of those goats. He was altogether different. He was not like one of those flawed priests. He was altogether different. In 11.1, it simply says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
this fifth danger here is the, the danger of losing faith. The danger of losing faith. Dever says, faith is not the hope that grows to certainty. Faith is the reality or the certainty that inspires hope. I'll say that again because it's something that I want you all to think about. We're not going to be able to get into it a lot tonight. But faith is not the hope that grows to certainty. Faith is the reality or the certainty that inspires hope. It's not a wish that you polish until it shines and then you put your hope in it. And it's not like building biceps. That's not how faith works. It is hope in reality. So if you lose your faith, you're really losing touch with reality in that sense. If you're losing faith, you're losing um, touch with reality. So faith is not the hope that grows to certainty. Faith is the reality or the certainty that inspires hope. So an example in, in 1034 says, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They had the certainty, the reality, that they had a better possession and an abiding one eternally. So it, they were able to respond joyfully when their goods were plundered. I, I just want you to recognize the difference between that and saying, oh, dang it, they're plundering our goods. Let's come up with something else to put our hope in. You know what I mean? Like, no, their hope was not in that. And they didn't do it reactively and try to find out, let's, let's create some eternal consideration that, the, you know, a heavenly thing that they can't take from us. No, you, that's reality. And so their hope is in the things of reality. So to lose your faith is to lose sight and lose hold of reality. They had faith, so they endured, not the other way around. Jesus modeled this for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He didn't on the cross say, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I have got to come up with something else to put my hope in. No, there was a reality of joy that was set before him. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured that cross and modeled for us that don't fall into the danger of losing your faith. Another one is in 1210. It says, uh, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Jesus disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Rejecting discipline is a danger that we should be mindful of. Persevering means accepting discipline. And when you're disciplined, you don't have to act like it's pleasant because the Bible says it's not. It says it's painful. And so sometimes when we're disciplined, every time when we're disciplined, it's painful, not pleasant. But what we're looking for is what comes later, which is the peaceful fruit of righteousness that comes through that training. And then the final one is just refusing the warning. Just in closing, 1225 says this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape him, will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Refusing the warnings that are given in this book is a danger. And so he says at the end, all those warnings that you've heard from me, don't refuse those. Because if you refuse those, what are you going to do when you get those warnings from heaven from our Lord? And so re refusing the warnings is, is a danger. So the closing thought is don't leave your options open when it comes to faith. Genuine faith has no backup plan. It's Jesus only. There's no backup plan. When I accepted my call into ministry, I remember uh, Vody Bauckham was preaching at a camp that I was a part of, and he said, he said, if you're going to go into ministry, 
don't get a business degree. Because too many people I know today are going into ministry and they get this business degree because just in case. A backup plan. And if the minister himself can't put their full faith in Jesus, how are they going to lead others to do that? And he just kind of talked about this backup plan. And then it stayed with me my whole life, so much so that I dropped out of school and went to ministry. And, uh, and now I'm working on my master's, you know, roughly almost 20 years in. And so, um, but don't leave your options open when it comes to faith. Genuine faith does not have a backup plan. Genuine faith is all in, full in, with no backup plan. Let's pray. Lord, you are very good to us, and you have blessed us abundantly in Christ. I'm thankful for the effective sacrifice. I'm thankful for the, the, the eternal nature of Christ. I'm thankful that he is the son, that you're your son that was given for, for our sin. Uh, Lord, we, we place our hope firmly in Christ, and we have no other hope. We have no backup plan. Uh, we love you. I pray that you would help us to walk in that. And I pray that as anyone in this room is tempted um, in any way, that our, when our flesh rages, uh, when our fears are boiling over and we're thinking that maybe it's not worth it, I pray that we would remember these, these elementary realities of Jesus and that that would cause us to grow, that that would cause us to persevere in holiness. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.